0: Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Hello, and welcome to season three of Always on EM, a podcast from Mayo Clinic's Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm Venk bellam
1: And I am Alex Finch.
0: We are your co-hosts for the show. And this month, I was thinking we could talk about that one night about a year ago when we were both on and that case came through, you, you know that case.
1: I remember. Nights are definitely challenging these days, but a case like that doesn't come along often.
0: I've never had a case like that, so I'm excited to talk through it. But before we get into the meat of it though, Alex, it's the new year, and some of our listeners might be joining for the very first time. Maybe you could give them an overview of what we do.
1: Well, first of all, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. The basic format is that on the first of every month, you'll get a deep dive into some core content area of emergency medicine. In the middle of the month, on the 14th, you'll get access to our departmental grand rounds to hear the newest and cutting-edge Emergency Medicine. You can listen through Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Additionally, you can find us on YouTube and check out our pictures on Instagram.
0: Even if this isn't your first time listening, maybe you haven't heard all of what we've produced and you're trying to decide where you should catch up. So Alex and I are going to review the, the top five most listened to episodes of 2023.
1: The fifth most listened to was our Highly engaged Grand Rounds episode by the incredible educator Dr. Carmen Sunga titled Can You Hear Me Now? How to Speak Like an Emergency Physician.
0: In fourth place was chapter 22. Did she just say Hemosuchus Pancreaticus? This was a discussion about gastrointestinal bleeding in the ED with brilliant Dr. Nina Coelho.
1: In third, we had chapter 14 called Urine the No Dialysis, Renal Failure, and More with the hilarious Dr. Jim Gregoire.
0: And for all my fellow Swifties, I love the title of our second place chapter. It was chapter 19 called Sorry, Taylor, There's No Bad Blood, a discussion on transfusions with the bow-tied bandit of blood himself, Dr. Justin Kreuter.
1: And in first, can you give me a drum roll, Vink? A true teacher of teachers, the wonderful Dr. Mark Manenbach sat down with us for chapter 19 called Sugar, We're Going Down Swinging, a discussion on pediatric DKA. I picked the title for this episode after the incredible Fall Out Boy song. Uh, Did you know that was the first concert I ever went to, the Vans Warped Tour?
0: I had no idea. Well, Alex, I really loved all of our episodes, and 2023 just had some amazing ones. I feel like they helped me grow personally, and I'm using the content I learned on those episodes on most of my shifts. I think we really have a high bar to... Achieve the same thing in 2024 and and really push it further. Totally agree. Now, if I could, especially at the new year, I get a little bit more reflective. And I was thinking, as we begin this third year, it'd be nice to take a moment to reflect on why we started.
1: I think looking back to those pandemic days, our goal was to try and decrease the distance between Mayo Clinic experts that we get to call on the phone and see in the hallway with the world of emergency medicine.
0: I couldn't have said it better. Absolutely, and. You know, another kind of side benefit for mentioning that is that maybe you're listening and you've been following along and you're enjoying the culture that we're trying to share with you and you're ready to go a little further and you want to consider joining the team. Well, it's important to note throughout the Mayo Clinic enterprise, there's usually jobs open and opportunities for any professional role, physician, nurse, APP, technician, paramedic, EMT, PCA, administrator, and more. Um, to join and be a part of this culture. And the people really make Mayo Clinic special. So Alex and I are going to put some of the links to the different websites where you can check out Mayo Clinic jobs that are open um, in case you want to be a part of it.
1: Thank. this is a lot of buildup. What do you say we get
0: into it? Okay, I think so. But I think what you're really saying is I'm not supposed to tell people to like, follow, and comment on the podcast?
1: Yes, and you can skip the part about where to find us by email, or following us on The Gram or YouTube.
0: Is it called The Gram now? It is indeed. Did you know that Erica calls Instacart Insta? And you do that too. Sometimes Instagram, you call Insta, right? Indeed. It's very confusing in my life when two people I care about use the same same word for different things. But I get you. Okay, that sounds great. I'm really excited about this month. It's like candy when we talk about aggressive resuscitation and This case for, you know, from the last couple years is one of those. Alex, do you want to paint a picture for us?
1: Absolutely. I think you all have gotten to know Venk and I over the past few years. Uh, You know, Venk is one of our incredible nocturnists, both at work and beyond. He's always editing podcasts at three in the morning. I'm a, a regular daytime dweller, but even I get nighttime shifts assigned from time to time. We've been sitting on this case for a while. It's been about a year, obviously, for privacy reasons. But Venk and I were actually working together one night about a year ago in the uh, Minnesota winter. I was a little bit nervous about the night, Venk. I I don't know about you. Uh, You know, our volumes have been really starting to spike. And I started to get some feelings that it was going to be an unusual night. Do you remember that?
0: I do. Especially, you know, this is the back end of the pandemic. I mean, we're still in the back end of the pandemic, right, I guess. But... You know, coming out of that, it felt like the volumes were really escalating, but yet we're not entirely sure if COVID is fully behind us. And we're getting messages throughout the day about how busy the ED is (laughs) and how great the teamwork is.
1: I totally agree. I remember I woke up and I still haven't really figured out the best way to sleep for a night shift on the first night. And so I kind of slept a little bit late and I opened my email and there was a message about, you know, volumes being high and i think i texted you and said it's going to be one of those nights and then i went in to take a nap and then i think we had another message when we got up and it was about that time that you and i started saying this is going to be an epic night <laughs> yes
0: that first one you know i kind of, when you texted me remember I, I was like oh it'll be okay don't worry you know um i got you and then when two more similar messages happened during the day i even i was a little bit on edge about what we're walking into, but. You know the nice part was when i did come into the night shift that night it wasn't as bad as i had in my head i i was thinking maybe there'd be a hundred people in the waiting room or something
1: i totally agree i'm not a superstitious person normally but driving just a little stitious, huh just a tiny yeah not superstitious a little bit stitious uh but coming in i i made sure i had uh Lose yourself by I, mean, I cranked that up. Oh, I only yes. live about four minutes from the hospital, so I only get through the intro, but that was <laughs> it. like i was I showed up. that's a hype with song. my with my dancing shoes on, I was ready to go. That it was gonna be a night of movement. And you're totally right. We showed up, and for lack of a better words, it almost seemed quiet. Yes, the, the dreaded, the dreaded cue. Oh, yes. and just by the numbers, uh, Vink knows, I always show up an hour before my shift and I start reading, and Vank started an hour before I did, so we got to greet each other. And the waiting room looked great.
0: I'll I, take all the credit for that.
1: Absolutely, I'm absolutely. Kidding. No, our partners did an incredible did job helping job. us out, and so we both went to take sign out. I think that I started to figure out something wasn't right because uh, our our system is that we have a senior resident in the department, one senior at night, and then a few juniors, we try and make a good effort to, to share the senior resident who is incredible. I noticed she alluded to the fact that there was a very sick patient on the other side while I was running an urgent care in my in my pod.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad it was an urgent care because that night I don't think we you were we running an ICU. Yeah, a one patient ICU that was that was chewing a lot of uh, resources, but you know, it was neat because in retrospect, it was neat, I should say. And all of this is from the scientist's perspective, because the actual case is, um, I, I found very heartbreaking and we'll get into that later. But I, I remember, you know, I heard from the team that there was a patient coming in with a toxidrome, uh, like an overdose of an illicit substance. And, um, I get a lot of alerts, like pre-warnings of patients, all the shift, and I honestly don't m- pay much mind to them, and this didn't cross my mind much at all. How do you handle all these warnings? Well,
1: I was I was on the, uh, I saw on the ambulance board this case coming in, and I remember seri- seeing a series of symptoms that caught my attention. I realized that the patient had been roomed on your side, and, and let, let's let start it off. So, so can you walk us through, Venk? How did this patient get to the hospital?
0: Uh, they came by an ambulance, though I didn't see the ambulance crew, uh, the nursing staff, I believe, were there when they dropped the patient off. Was and this like a
1: medical resuscitation?
0: No, they came to our, our standard acute care room, um, not the resuscitation room.
1: And what did the nurses share with you about that MS report?
0: The one, once the patient was dropped off, they basically told me there's a sick patient there, and one of our off-service residents was already in there, and um, so I just looked at the vitals and on the monitor and it looked like a heart rate around 140 to 160 beats per minute and a blood pressure of 90 systolic. I couldn't see the temp on it, but I'd been told by others who were watching the ambulance board that this person had a high temperature and they were calling it hyperthermia. And, um, which was a little funny to me in the middle of our winter uh, to see hyperthermia as opposed to fever and, um, So I I was already a little bit skeptical of all the things I was hearing, but needless to say, I think everybody's in agreement that the patient was ill.
1: I don't know about you, but I find uh, a systolic blood pressure of 90 as a little bit challenging at times because... Uh, a lot of people describe it as soft. It's sort of like a run of PVCs. No one wants to say VTAC. They say a run of PVCs. And usually people say softer blood pressures. And no one's willing to say this patient is hypotensive at this point. But you're you're painting a picture of someone who could be young and a little bit dehydrated or could be on the precipice of, of frank shock.
0: Exactly. And so at that point, I just went in to see the patient. And I'd heard the patient potentially had consumed cocaine Mm -hmm. in some form and that she was very sick. And so I'm walking in and thinking about these vital signs on the way to the room, which is a very short distance from my desk. The systolic of 90 and the tachycardia don't seem to fit with cocaine in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking this doesn't fit with cocaine. It doesn't fit with thyrotoxicosis. It really fits more for infection Um, potentially, you know, some kind of atopic reaction as well, or medication reaction. But So um,
1: already from the door to the patient's door, you were already starting to feel a little bit skeptical about the information you had, and the the illness script wasn't quite lining up.
0: Exactly. Yeah. When I walked in the room, I was really excited that some of our, like, best nursing team was there. I saw the off-service um, resident was doing a great job trying to acquire more information at the patient's bedside and was listening to heart and lungs, et cetera. And the patient had their eyes open. She wasn't necessarily tracking anyone, but had her eyes open and was breathing reasonably comfortably on room air. And How so old
1: is this patient? We're...
0: She's in her 20s.
1: Okay. So we have a, a female in her 20s and you look at her, does she look toxic? What, what are you seeing?
0: You know, she doesn't look as bad as those vitals would say. Okay. Um, But she's not responding. I notice when people ask her questions or move around the room, she's not tracking them. She's kind of staring off into space. Um, Is this like stroke? You know, one side isn't moving or is it? It's more flaccid. So all sides are flaccid. So it'd be unlikely that in my mind that she would have her eyes open and would be uniformly flaccid. Mm -hmm. So I just saw that as profound weakness in my mind, but, um, she's protecting her airway. She's breathing on her own. She's very tachycardic on the monitor and it looks regular. Um, though I didn't march it out on the monitor itself. And then I'm told that her temperature was 105 degrees Celsius. That was by pre-hospital. And so I'm thinking already that's changing my differential along with that 90 systolic uh, away from cocaine Absolutely. Of course, we go through our standard process of getting her on the monitor and doing a history and a physical. Uh, There were some challenges in getting additional collateral. Uh, There was no family available. In addition, looking at her medication list, which is in the record, uh, there are some drugs on there that handle diabetes, and then there are some HIV drugs that are on there or medications. And so that got me thinking that this patient could potentially be very immunosuppressed or immune compromised rather, and uh, might be at risk for a lot of infections like toxoplasmosis and other things we don't typically see too much of in our emergency department.
1: Did the patient have HIV?
0: I don't know. Okay. The, the record was a little unclear about that, uh, but I saw the med list, those drugs were there, Truvada, etc. And so I acted as though she did. And I said, you know, I told the team, we're not going to eliminate the possibility of a toxidrome, but given diabetes and HIV pr- medications are on her med list and the lack of other history and the fact that the pressures are a little soft with the tachycardia, I think we need to be very thoughtful about severe sepsis. And so we I talked to the team about getting great access, blood cultures, broad-spectrum antibiotics. And then it, I also noticed very early on that there was a few tiny little red spots on her chest and her, all her limbs. And they were very tiny. um, And I didn't know if they were normal or not, but they caught my attention nonetheless. And so I told the team, we're going to keep an eye on that because that could be important. I didn't go into the details, but let me know if it changes.
1: What prompted you to do that full skin exam?
0: Uh, She was already, they were They had her mostly exposed so that they could get her on the monitor and as part of her exam, but it's something that Dr. Annie Sadasti, um, who to me is just one of the most influential teachers I've ever had, really emphasized that, especially when you're dealing with very sick patients or vulnerable populations, to make sure that we get as much data as we can, including a good visual examination of the skin.
1: So I'm thinking about this almost as a medical resuscitation, and they're my five-minute, 15-minute, and hour goals. What are the five-minute goals here? What, When you're walking out of this room, what are the next actions that you wanted from your team?
0: I want access, monitoring, ECG, fluids, antibiotics.
1: This feels like oral boards. I like it. Okay, so we're starting to work through those things, and were there any challenges of any of that?
0: Not really. Amazingly, everyone rose to the occasion. I think it helped, like we said, that the ED was relatively quiet. Forgive me if anyone is listening. I didn't say that about your current ED. But at that moment, it was relatively quiet. So we had a lot of support from all our sport teams.
1: All right. I heard you call for antibiotics. What did you call for?
0: Because of the possibility of AIDS, I'm thinking this could be a CNS infection like toxoplasmosis, et cetera, um, causing the decreased level of consciousness or interactivity along with the sepsis. So I went to talk to our clinical pharmacist about my concerns and then proposed that we treat for potential meningitis as well as uh, bacteremia and severe sepsis. And then those spots on the patient's body were Interesting enough to me that I mentioned the possibility that this could be meningococcemia as well.
1: There are a lot of possibilities at this point Um, You mentioned meningitis Meningococcemia What other workup is being initiated at this point?
0: We got blood cultures lactates toxidrome tests uh, uh, ECG We ordered a head CT with and without contrast to evaluate for toxoplasmosis, CNS lymphoma, abscess, TB, et cetera. We got chest radiography. There were some report of GI symptoms recently. And so we ended up getting an abdominal and pelvic CT and a pregnancy test. there was. I asked one of the nurses to stool pathogen panel. That eventually we did order, <laughs> but it was not. That like wasn't a, first line. That no, wasn't a five minute
1: goal. No. That was that was a fifteen minute goal. Right. Okay.
0: And All of right. course, you know, everybody is gowned and gloved because yeah. of COVID, and so they had already swabbed for COVID, and RSV, and influenza as well, and so we had that that we sent off. Um, and we'll
1: say aspects of this case. The hairs on the back of my neck are starting. Uh, to jump up because you know I feel like this is a case where you're walking in with some potential for anchoring. This is another COVID toxidrome pressure. in the middle of the night yep. or COVID and just kind of something we see and kind of minute by minute things are starting to look worse. We're yeah. fr- we're kind of at borderline blood pressures to I'm really worried about septic yeah. shock and then we have a little encephalopathy but now we're worried about maybe something like frank meningitis yep. and so. Very quickly, these details are are adding up. Do you remember what antibiotics you ended up picking?
0: I think we had ceftriaxone, we had flagell, we had ampicillin, we had acyclovir, uh, vancomycin. Okay, so I wasn't there, but
1: that sounds to me like we're targeting a lot of bad CNS stuff and a little bit of belly stuff. Yes, exactly. All right, so overall, um, the antibiotics are being loaded in. And I assume the next step was CT. Uh, How did the scans come back?
0: Interestingly, I should say, even before, like when I visited with the pharmacist and went back to the room to talk to the team about what we were gonna get, those spots were more prominent.
1: That's an ominous sign for sure. Yeah,
0: exactly. And you know, I didn't know if that meant that there was microvascular trauma from fluid shifts or this is early DIC or something like that. Um, But it was something that I took note of and that'll be a theme every visit I had with her those spots were more visible more prominent more prevalent Uh, I
1: think what would be really hard for me in a case like this is many of us have seen DIC many of us have, have started to have that feeling like you're losing traction even as you're trying to get started but in a very young patient a young healthy patient I said ominous already, but it, it starts to have this feeling like something really bad is, is occurring.
0: I had a feeling that this is somebody who is going to challenge me and our team to be our best and that we want to rise for. And um, our initial point of care tests were coming back to the lactate was close to 10, the potassium was 2.6, um, there was an acidosis uh, along with hyperglycemia. And the bicarb was around 10. And so mixing in there, I started to think about DKA and I was a little bit nervous because I can't initiate insulin with a potassium of 2.6 and I can't resuscitate a potassium of 2.6 peripherally or even centrally very quickly. Um, and so I talked to the team about how we're going to start peripheral potassium so that we can eventually get to treating the DKA. We're going to give the fluids that we had already planned because she looked dry. And then I said, we might just drop a nasal gastric tube to start giving potassium as well. And I don't know if anyone else does that, but when I see profound hypokalemia and I need to resuscitate it quickly, gastric tubes are something I, I lean on sometimes heavily. I
1: think that my, pr- my general practice would be line the patient up and give more IV, but I, uh, I would definitely consider is, that.
0: The only things you can the max is regardless of the lines Mm -hmm. it's not 10 per peripheral Mm -hmm. it's 10 total peripherally Mm -hmm. or 20 mill equivalents per hour Mm -hmm. centrally Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how many central lines you put in and so um yeah and so i'm thinking at 2.6 to get close to four is going to take 14 hours peripherally or seven hours centrally Mm -hmm. and so we did start but Orally or enterically, you can really give 60, 80 mil equivalents. Now, there's arguments about whether some of that's just going to get pooped out because it exceeds absorption rates, but but you're going to get a a bigger bang for your buck that way. So anyway, I had those discussions, and the patient went and came back to your original question to CT, and I got a quick report from the radiologist because I mentioned to them um, through our secure chat system how worried I was, and they said they didn't see any cns lesions whatsoever on the ct with or without contrast
1: in some ways i think this is happening and i'm almost i'm more concerned everything i have biochemical markers of badness but i'm hoping on some level i'm going to see an easy pneumonia or you know bowel obstruction happy something something that is a a clear structural issue. And here we have nothing. So what are your next steps?
0: And also the spots that I will say I was very confident were petechiae are worse and almost purpuric now. And so, and the patient is getting worse in terms of her vitals. Um,
1: How is she behaving at this point?
0: Yeah. As we resuscitated her, she started to become a little interactive, occasionally making vocalizations and answering some questions, but not, not in a great linear fashion. And then that proceeded to overt agitation and she could not be redirected. She wasn't, wasn't answering questions, but also was hindering her resuscitation. And so we were thinking more and more, she's going to need an intubation. And this is at the same time that her vitals are worse. Her pressures are now closer to low eighties, sometimes upper seventies. Her tachycardia is improved, but um, she's still very sick that way. And so...
1: This sounds like a risky proposition. I I know I hear Ben Sandifer in my head saying, resuscitate before you intubate, but you've already been resuscitating this patient. Yeah. There's a lot of things working against you. So I'm hearing uh, a pretty profound metabolic acidosis, which is telling me that if we don't match the patient's rate of breathing, or if there's any... Reasonable period of apnea, and you have a superimposed respiratory acidosis. This patient's going to code. Exactly. And then already this patient is extremely preload dependent in her shock state, and we're going to take that away and flip her to positive pressure. And she's already hypotensive despite the the now what
0: she had three liters. uh, She had thirty five hundred cc. Thirty five hundred cc. She's
1: gotten. There's this is a challenge. What were you thinking at this point?
0: And that thirty five hundred is about 30 cc's per kilogram for her for what it's worth. And, um, so yeah, we had started peripheral norepinephrine, um, with the plan to get a central line as well. So we're thinking multiple procedures need to happen, central access, intubation, lumbar puncture, gastric tube, all of which need to happen while keeping the patient safe and trying to think of the order of this, um, while wearing COVID protection and, not having much additional history. In fact, she has no additional history providers for her and minimal information in the chart. So
1: how did the intubation go?
0: Yeah. So we did our very best to get the patient's hemodynamics as well as we could. So with peripheral norepi going and the crystalloid resuscitation, I think we got the pressures just at 90. And I remember, in fact, telling the room I wanted to hold off until we could get the Pressure's in the art line at 90, and they were for a moment, and by the time the drugs were starting to be pushed, we were back down to 83 (laughs) systolic, because you know how quickly it changes, right? I get it. The team looked at me, and I said, it's fine. We're not going to get any better. Let's go for it.
1: What drugs did you pick? um,
0: If I remember correctly, we used ketamine and rocuronium.
1: What were you thinking with
0: that? We were thinking ketamine might be a little bit more hemodynamically neutral um, for the group, and then also with as many other procedures we needed to get done, and uh, just making sure that she, she, the patient, is comfortable and sedated well throughout this. And the rocuronium, I think, was just in case we get into trouble, we could give a reversal agent if we needed to.
1: I think that's really thoughtful. I know that wars have been fought over deciding whether you're going to give etomidate or ketamine. There have been some interesting recent literature updates on this that I don't think You know we go into but in my in my mind generally i think of atomidate as hemodynamically neutral ketamine maybe i'll get a little bit uh, of a bump in a in a patient who has blood pressure to give me but i think if i have a patient who i think they are functionally adrenally suppressed i think i'm going to go for ketamine like you did and what you're painting for me is a picture who of a patient who's in septic shock and i want to give them every chance i can is that is that how you approach it
0: yeah, I, I totally agree. And the adrenal issues in my mind, they were there for just a moment, more because I was thinking this patient has meningococcemia mm-hmm. and that can injure the adrenals as well. Um, but honestly, even without that, the ketamine because of the hemodynamic effects mm-hmm. um, and the duration were two main reasons for me. So. And I hate ketamine, full disclosure, I hate ketamine, but you know, at this point, I think it was the right drug.
1: I love ketamine and full disclosure, I've given talks on the merits of ketamine (laughs) uh, for which Venk has for a long time been my mentor. And as I went to give a talk in front of uh, a room full of emergency physicians about how ketamine is the only drug you need, I was practicing it for Venk as he rolled his eyes at me. (laughs) Venk, why do you hate
0: ketamine? I think, uh, there's several reasons. We could have a whole podcast episode on my feelings of ketamine. But I would say, I think I encounter a lot of nausea and vomiting. I've had multiple patients with emergence phenomena. I see hypotension at when I see a bigger doses of ketamine given.
1: What is, uh, what is emergence phenomenon? What have you seen?
0: Uh, so a lot of agitation coming out of ketamine okay. sedations. And uh, not intubations, of course, but more sedations. Um, I've even, I hate to admit this. But I've even been kicked in the nuts by a patient who was hallucinating uh, multiple times. I, I had
1: this. to draw that out of him because <laughs> that when, I, when I was giving my ketamine talk, he started it with, there's no other drug that has caused a patient to kick me down there. And, yes. so, um, so,
0: and okay. I don't know if you knew this. So my sister did her Pease residency in Milwaukee. So okay. completely different place than here. Mm-hmm. She heard about how I got kicked in the nuts with ketamine when she was doing her residency there (laughs) and called me What? because the staff who was in the PZD here that night when I was a resident and got kicked moved over to Milwaukee and obviously we have a very unique last name and she came through and he couldn't help but recount (laughs) this very horrific night. Uh, Professional networks. Yes. That's what it's all about. So I get this call from my sister in the middle of the night and she's like, so how's it going? And I'm like, I'm doing good. You know, because it's years later, <laughs> I'm thinking this is way behind me, right? Yeah. The, the embarrassment is behind me. And then somebody brings it up. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is living on. How did you hear this in Milwaukee? <laughs> so Christopher Spar, if you're out there, thank you for bringing that to the rest of my family. Appreciate that.
1: How'd the intubation go?
0: It went wonderfully. Um, and in fact, after the intubation, I was expecting the patient to have a rapid cardiovascular c- collapse, but she did not. Um, she held her own vitals almost, almost unchanged. And we were able to match the tachypnea um, that, she was, that she was showing a little bit beforehand. Um, so that, w- that went really well.
1: Okay. So you are matching her rate, recheck a VBG, make sure that you're not getting precipitously more acidemic. What was your next move?
0: Yeah. Immediately afterwards, we went right into placing the central line while simultaneously placing the gastric tube. And um, the gastric tube finished first, as you might expect, while we were setting up for the central line. Um, And then we started putting potassium in there, and we were able to get the potassium up very quickly. Um, I'd say within 45 minutes to an hour, we were over 3.4.
1: And next was the LP?
0: Yeah. And then we did the LP. And that went really well. I don't know how many people have done too many LPs on intubated patients, but, um, you know, it's, it has pros and cons. Thankfully, the patient doesn't generally move on you, but it's hard to get them to really push their belly button backwards. So it can be a bit challenging to find your spot.
1: What did the CSF look like?
0: It was, um, clear from tube one, all the way to tube four. tube one had a slight blood tinge to it, but that was gone by tubes two, three, and four. And, um, only one red cell, I got to say, for the, for the team who did it.
1: It sounds like the resident team did a phenomenal job.
0: They did at all levels. And I had wanted to get an opening pressure. We didn't do that in the moment the, the team forgot that I, that was one detail. And I use that when the opening pressures are high in patients I'm worried about meningitis. I use that as almost a confirmation that they probably have meningitis. Uh, if it's low, it doesn't rule it out to me. But um, in this case, we didn't get one. But all other aspects of the uh, lumbar puncture were reassuring overall.
1: And where did the patient go from there?
0: Yeah. Um, all our lines are being used. All the antibiotics are mostly in at this point. And um, we've got pressures now going through the central line. We maxed the norepi, added vasopressin.
1: So it sounds like she's not doing well at this point.
0: Uh, The pressures had dropped uh, even further, Uh, but it wasn't around the intubation. I think that was one piece. It was just as part. shock. Exactly. Refractory And she no longer had petechia. It was all purpura, her whole body. And the interesting part for me, I remember while they were doing the lumbar puncture, I took a moment to just look at her feet because they were right there in front of me. And there's this faint bluish patch underneath the sole of her. Uh, foot and it's, it's very subtle, but, um, you know, sometimes when you see my kids color their skin all the time with markers, right? And it's so vibrant and it's on the top, but this looked like it was several layers deep Hmm. in the skin. Um, but it was there and yet it wasn't tense like a bruise or bleed underneath, even though it probably is a microvascular bleed, but It was almost beautiful, and that wasn't there, and I had pointed it out to our team repeatedly to keep an eye on this, and and everybody was noticing that. And throughout the legs and the buttock and back, you could see purpura um, throughout, and they're non-blanching, and um, yeah, so that plus her vitals had gotten worse, like I mentioned.
1: Um, Was there any oozing around IV sites, anything like that? Because it sounds to me like this patient's going into DIC.
0: No, no, she did not have anything like that, okay. um, but we checked repeatedly, and she was doing very well from that end, Okay, and um, yeah, and we did find out she did not have AIDS. Uh, she was just on those medications for a different reason, uh, but did not have AIDS, and so that was reassuring. Um, we did diagnose at that point that she had DKA, um, and then I got a call uh, from the micro lab that... Um, There were some concerning features about her blood cultures. What did they say? um, They said that there were paired circular structures that were intracellular, and it was an emergent finding, but they couldn't tell me anything more than that yet. And I remember asking them, like, so what is your differential for that that I should be aware of? And they said, we're not allowed to tell you. And I said— I'm
1: not going to lie. Until I was researching for this episode— that would be an extremely frustrating emergent finding for me to receive. Um, I I would have to pull up a resource to try and narrow down exactly what that's saying. I'm I'm sure you're you're incredible. You probably knew right away what they were talking about.
0: I didn't actually. I, and I'm I'm very vocal about my failures in life, and one of them is infectious disease, as um, I've put forth on Twitter and other things. But interestingly, this is one of my most fascinating infections to have read about when I was training. So I read a lot. So I asked, I'm thinking meningococcus when I hear that. And I'm thinking of that at the bedside. Am I far off? And they said, you're not far off is the answer I got on the phone. <laughs> and I realized that they're bound by some things they're allowed to say and not. So I took that as we're all on the same page that this is concerning for meningococcus.
1: The patient is admitted and out of your care, I think first, can you briefly summarize the course of the patient?
0: Yeah. So this patient had almost a steady downward clinical trajectory in the emergency department, Um, not for a lack of our effort, of course. And coming in with very concerning vital signs with a concern for possible cocaine use and then um, a few other confounders with diabetes and HIV meds. And then we were progressively identifying more and more features of what looks like meningococcus. And um, I would say I was concerned initially about meningococcal meningitis, um, but after seeing the CSF was so beautiful, um, it was more about meningococcemia at that point. And um, yeah, they went to the ICU, maxed out on pressors, intubated central line, getting potassium replenishment, but also DKA therapies um, and lots of flu- IV fluid resuscitation.
1: Where did it go from there?
0: She ended up being placed on ECMO, I heard, and um, things were initially very, very more bound, but she rebounded on day three and then eventually was able to improve to the point of recovery several weeks later. Um and I didn't follow after that when she went to the floor, but I'm hopeful that she walked out of the hospital after that.
1: This is an incredible case in a lot of ways. First of all, in the diagnosis, it is a fairly rare disease at this point. I actually took the opportunity to look up Minnesota statistics from our Department of Health, and it looks like there were five cases in the most recent year that they published, which was 17 adults and one child. And so this is something that... Many of us may never never see in our careers, but also a really sad and challenging case to have a young person that was so sick. And so, in addition to the patient's trajectory, can you walk me through how it felt and and how how did the team deal with that?
0: Yeah, I think um, I think the physician staff knew the seriousness of meningococcemia. Um and some of the other members did too. But uh, possibly to the benefit, I don't think everyone knew how dangerous this thing is. And, but afterwards, when the dust settles, I pulled folks aside and I said, I'm going to try and figure out what we need to do for our team. Um, And I let them know that they should be on alert for that the next day. And um, it was on my mind, even the next morning when, you know, I walk home after my, or get home after my shift and I walk in and my kids are up and they want to give me hugs and, and, it's one of my favorite times to rebuild my emotional reserves to see them. but when I'm hugging my littlest one and I'm thinking about how I just came in contact with something that is so dangerous, um, it crossed my mind. It was doing some real mental gymnastics with me, I have to be honest. Yeah.
1: I think that this touches a little bit on that concept of residue, which is something that Colin Bucks talks about a lot. and you know, being done with your shift, but feeling feeling a case is still present. Even when you're done is a profound thing in emergency medicine, and particularly when you're weighing that you might in some way be exposed is a profound thing. I remember texting you the next day and discussing this, just wanting to support you and and try and figure out how how we could we could try and get through it in some way together. And I'm so sorry because uh, many of you may not know this, but you know, Vink has been my mentor for many years, and he was there for me in my first needle stick exposure and i remember calling him from a completely empty apartment in arizona i had um, i was rotating there and there was a crashing patient and I placed a central line and i just remember that moment i think a lot of emergency providers know that moment where i was placing a, a femoral line and i was trying to secure it and there was a lot of action all of a sudden i feel you know an electric shock in my index finger of my left hand you know there's all all the things we know it wasn't an empty needle and so risks are low risks are always low but to be the person and then be there alone after the shift feels hard and i remember talking to you you had a whole system for how you dealt with uh, needle sticks and i remember talking to you through this and i i didn't have that kind of advice i had never had an exposure like this what was what was that process like and did you end up doing post-exposure prophylaxis?
0: Yeah. You know, um, eventually in talking with our system uh, infection control folks, um, there was a question posed on whether, how I felt about it. And I I said, you know, I know that it's on my mind, even though I know from a science perspective that we were wearing proper PPE and the exposure should be pretty low. The risk should be very low. But... Just life, you know, at that time, people are getting sick with fever and cough left and right because of COVID and RSV and influenza and other things. And
1: you actually got sick a few days later. I, I did. You did. I
0: absolutely did. The next day when I woke up, I was diaphoretic and I was like, oh, I must be really anxious about this. But it ended up turning into a, a GI illness and um, and a fever, etc. cetera. And um, I was really grateful that I had chosen to take the prophylaxis when it was offered, even though scientifically, I may not have needed it uh, just to take one thing off my mind.
1: We're going to transition now a little bit to some of the core content about meningococcemia uh, away from the case so that we can all learn and be at our best and rise up for these cases when they're in our emergency department or in my case, if it's in my department on my clinical side and I'm and I get to help you a little bit more. So when we say meningococcemia or meningococcal disease, what are we referring to?
0: Yeah, we're talking about infection with Neisseria meningitidis, which is a gram-negative caucus that usually affects people in pairs. And um, when we say meningococcemia, we're referring to bacteremia with this pathogen. And when we say meningococcal meningitis, we're talking about CNS penetration with this bacteria.
1: And looking through the epidemiology, Neisseria meningitidis is one of the leading causes of bacterial meningitis, and has a pretty profound mortality rate. We're talking somewhere between 10 to 15%. And so when we think of modern day infections, this is, this is a scary one for sure. I had a chance to do a deep dive into the literature, and I wanna go over some of the symptoms that I was able to see, and you can fact check me and tell me how it seemed in the moment. Reading about this, common symptoms include fever, nausea, vomiting, sometimes diarrhea, headache, decreased ability to concentrate or encephalopathy, severe myalgias. How am I sounding at this point?
0: I think it fits with the patient I saw in front of me, though she was not able to give me some of the background story, whether she was vomiting, had a headache, etc. I will say, though,
1: I read that, and that just looks like flu to me. I mean yeah. on my shift on the other side I saw four of these cases Absolutely. that had these exact same symptoms and so this is one that I, I don't know that these symptoms alone are going to lead me to the diagnosis. No, and,
0: I agree with you. Uh,
1: I think in this case a rash really jumped out at you that as well as abnormal vitals.
0: And I think the thought that she was immunosuppressed mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, immunocompromised was also on my mind.
1: In our effort to do uh some literature review I wanted to briefly talk about uh, a paper by Heckenberg and colleagues from 2008, Clinical Features, Outcome, and Meningococcal Genotype in 258 Patients with Meningococcal Meningitis, a Prospective Cohort Study. And what was really interesting is they looked at symptoms in this cohort of patients and found that we classically think of this triad of fever, neck stiffness, and altered mental status. And they found that only about 30% uh, of patients with meningococcal meningitis in this cohort had that. And I know that all the time I'm going in and and asking about that triad. And so this paper definitely caught my attention that I got to be a little bit more sensitive in my exam. Some common things that I could misdiagnose would be uh, influenza, COVID. I might overlook this. But really in, in reading on meningococcemia, the rash is a pretty profound thing and really we're talking about a petechial rash uh reportedly over about over 50 percent of patients will have petechiae on presentation that eventually come together to make these purpura that you were describing ultimately this is really telling you that the patient may be going into dic when you were looking at the patient where did you start to see a rash first
0: It was visible when she first arrived on her, like over her sternum and her wrists and palms and ankles and soles of her feet. But it was just spots. Um, It stood out on the palms and soles more than anything. And then it got worse from those areas. And then it seemed to coalesce. If those are the five starting points, then they started to come together um, as her resuscitation unfolded.
1: Additionally, one of the things that Neisseria meningitidis is famous for, interestingly, is myocardial involvement. And that's something that's not the case necessarily with all sepsis. So these patients can develop heart failure, pulmonary edema. Uh, A large percentage of patients who end up dying end up having myocarditis. It is interesting how refractory the patient was to the pressors that, that you administered. And that the patient ended up on mechanical circulatory support and we're going to talk a little bit more about that because that's a a deep passion of mine how do we ultimately make the diagnosis of neisseria meningitis in a patient
0: there are pcr tests but they're not to replace the use of culture but um, culture is going to be the most important and that could be culture of the blood or culture of csf obviously we're going to get cultures everywhere we got urine blood csf cultures Some people are even doing skin biopsies. It didn't cross my mind at all, but only in the aftermath of the case, as I was reading, that was a consideration as well.
1: And I think a a real goal is to identify the organism, the causative organism. But additionally, once we have identified Neisseria meningitidis, we also want to see if it's penicillin-susceptible or resistant. And trying to look through CDC recommendations, first line, something like IV ceftriaxone, two grams IV every 12 hours in an adult. And that's a lot of ceftriaxone, right? I mean, normally we're talking about something like two grams every 24 hours for something like pyelonephritis. So high dose ceftriaxone. And then we're waiting on our penicillin susceptibilities. But I thought this would also be, since we're talking about cultures, I thought that this would be a good time for our very first always on EM quiz. And so, you get a call from the microbiome laboratory, and they will not tell you this what is the organism is. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> and they say we're seeing small pleomorphic Gram-negative coxobacilli. Any guesses?
0: I'm phoning a friend.
1: The answer is Haemophilus influenza. All right. How about gram-positive diplococci?
0: Where's Casey Clements?
1: Where's Casey? (laughs) Pneumococcal infection. And then that is different than this case where they might have said gram-negative diplococci. So in summary, gram-negative diplococci, you get that call. And we're thinking Neisseria meningitis. Gram-positive diplococci, pneumococcal meningitis. And small pleomorphic gram-negative, coxobacilli *Haemophilus influenza*. So tuck that away for the next time you get a cryptic call yes. from the microbiolab, and they can't tell you the answer, um, or just come back here during the. Uh, or training. I'll
0: just throw out things and ask them, "Is that on your list?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is that exactly. On
1: your list? <laughs> you know, something that's always bothered me is where is this coming from? Like, you know, was, did did this young woman live with a bunch of people who had this at the same time? Because only four people were diagnosed with this disease in Minnesota in 2017. Where is this coming from?
0: I think it's all around us. But when you see the media depict this type of infection, they make it seem like when you see one patient, you're going to see seven.
1: It wasn't until I really started reading more about this that I came to understand that there's a large population of people who are carriers. Ultimately, you know, this is transmitted by droplets. So we're talking about droplet precautions. Really, the transmission is sharing respiratory and oropharyngeal secretions in close contact. So not as much like influenza. happen to be in the same room, but there's often a little bit longer interaction. But I would certainly be thinking about an intubation carefully. And I think that's probably what was lingering in your mind as well. Overall, in reading CDC website, about 1 in 10 people are carriers and have this in their nasopharynx. Only a small percentage will then go on to develop an infection. You know, it's very interesting that such a severe disease.
0: It's so ubiquitous. It is, yeah. Instead of typhoid Mary, we've got meningococcal Mike.
1: Meningococcal Mike. (laughs) Laughlin, if you're out there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about using Marty, but he he might get very upset with me. (laughs) All
1: right. So we've talked about how it's spread. We've talked uh, about post-exposure prophylaxis, some of the initial treatments.
0: One other area that I want to leave people with is that um, the criteria for CSF meningitis or bacterial meningitis, CSF glucose below 45 milligrams per deciliter, the serum to glucose ratio being under 0.4, uh, protein concentration over 500 milligrams per deciliter and a white count in the CSF over a thousand per microliter. These are all findings that could support bacterial meningitis diagnosis. You don't have to have all of them, but some of them also, um, we touched on Waterhouse Friedrichson syndrome earlier and
1: yeah, let's, let's go. Let's uh, define that and flesh it out.
0: So just to recall, Waterhouse-Friedrichsen syndrome is the term for the injury that happens to the adrenal glands from an meningococcal infections. And it's believed to be bleeding that happens there that can precipitate an adrenal crisis. And, um, and so thinking about that potential cause and the fact that the patient's hemodynamics were so bad even at presentation, we gave steroids to her right off the bat. Smart. And um, I know that's somewhat controversial, and maybe others wouldn't have done it, but we went ahead and did that, and I, I'm grateful to have done it. Another term that comes up sometimes is purpura fulminans, and that's the, the term for the rash that these patients get, but only about 20%. So one in five patients with meningococcemia will have purpura fulminans. And, and
1: to kind of frame it for people, we're saying, we're starting with petechiae. We're going to purpura and then, essentially, we have this coalescing that might cover an entire limb, and that's, that's purpur fulminans because, essentially, what we're talking about is cutaneous hemorrhage, basically.
0: And I, I will fully disclose, we're talking about some of my weakest areas, so inf- infection and immunology is a weak area, and then dermatologic things. Uh, the only third, if we're going to make this really terrible, is you start asking me about eye things, then, then I'm really going to run out the door. But... Uh, So I I just want to review when I see petechiae for me, I'm thinking about problems of vascular integrity. So like trauma, infections, pressure changes, hemostatic disruptions. So like platelet number problems or platelet function problems, Um, number problems, that's your ITP, TTP, HUS, and then clotting deficiencies, hemophilia, von Willebrands, and then DIC of course can interact with a lot of those different things, whether it's hemorrhage or you know, um, clotting dysfunction, et cetera. And so that was going through my head as well, this differential. And when I, I remember in our recess rooms, you can see vital uh, lab tests as they show up on the big screens. So we moved her to the recess room to do the procedures, so we needed more space. And up to this point, we didn't have her platelets back. And while the intubation was happening, the platelets showed up. Um, and it was under 100, but not, not where we should be seeing all these petechiae and seeing a relatively reassuring platelet count was really concerning to me. I think those are the aspects that I feel comfortable talking about, but one I don't, but I think you will, is about ECMO. When I saw that the patient went on ECMO downstream from the ED, I have to be honest, I started to wonder if I should have been calling out of the ED itself, and then what is the evidence in general for ECMO for meningococcemia patients?
1: As someone who's really passionate about ECMO, sepsis is a a very interesting area in that in adults, it's been looked at over and over and found to have marginal benefit. But really where I think we started to see positive studies is this question of adults who have myocardial depression. And there've been a a couple of papers that that really show this, The, the first one, Um, that I want to talk about was Ling and colleagues in critical care in 2021. They published VA ECMO as mechanical circulatory support in adult septic shock, a systematic review and meta-analysis. It was a a nicely done study that looked at 14 observational studies with about 500 patients with a pooled survival of just over 35%. This was a sick cohort of patients in refractory septic shock. And what they found is that survival was better among patients who had a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 20% who got ECMO when compared with patients who had a good ejection fraction of 35% who got ECMO. So those with the poor ejection fraction had a survival of 62% versus those who had a better working heart and only had a 32% survival rate. I think that this is really showing you that VA ECMO is is giving you something It's replacing the heart. And if the heart is failing, you're going to get a benefit. It isn't going to universally work for everyone. For me, one of the papers that really identified this first was from some of the same authors, but was VA ECMO to rescue sepsis-induced cardiogenic shock, a retrospective multi-center international cohort study. And this was by researchers from the ECMO network in the Lancet in 2020. They looked at a sick cohort of patients. So overall, the patients had to have a cardiac index less than three or an ejection fraction less than 35 and compared 82 patients who received ECMO versus 130 controls. They found that despite the ECMO group having worse baseline cardiac function, the ECMO group had improved survival at 90 days at 60% when compared with only 25% in the control group. So I don't know what, what this patient's EF was or cardiac index was at the time of going ECMO, but what we do know from preparing for this podcast episode is that Neisseria meningitidis is known to cause myocarditis and compared with you know some other causes of sepsis, uh, has a pretty high rate of causing myocardial dysfunction, especially among patients who are more abound. But um, that would would be a reason to consider ECMO in this patient population. And I should also clarify that we're talking about adults here. There's a a better prognosis with ECMO for sepsis in children.
0: Listening to you explain that, I'm wondering if I had built into our prioritization potentially a cardiac ultrasound, troponins, that might help to identify when cardiac dysfunction occurs as they could be trended um it'd be difficult to tease out dysfunction secondary to critical illness from a prime a new neisseria specifically causing myocarditis Yeah,
1: break. you know I agree. Um and I definitely don't think that all of our listeners need to get tropes on all these patients. What I think I think the money is really in in the point of care ultrasound. And if you're seeing a decreased ejection fraction, we're not talking, you know, 54%. We're talking if it really looks like there's stunning occurring, that's a patient who you as an emergency provider could think maybe ECMO would be a step for this patient. And if I'm going to transfer them somewhere, it might be someplace that could offer mechanical circulatory support, or that would be somewhere in your mind.
0: This is Venk jumping in after the interview with a little bit more information about echocardiographic findings related to myocarditis. In particular, there aren't any hard findings that are specific and diagnostic in and of themselves for myocarditis. But when we think about myocarditis as opposed to ischemic cardiomyopathy, generally we're going to think about a more global dysfunction for myocarditis and a more regional dysfunction for ischemic disease. In addition, you can use some very specialized echocardiographic tools like tissue Doppler or um, 3D echocardiographic imaging or speckle tracking to be able to distinguish the two as well if you have access to it. There were so many things we were doing it felt like the resuscitation olympics for this patient for the three to five hours they were in the emergency department but i can completely see the value of squeezing in a cardiac ultrasound in there when we could
1: well everyone we first want to welcome our new listeners it is a new year it is january 1st today and we are excited to have you with us we are thankful for many things in this new year but one of those many things is you thank you for the time you're giving us uh, and the adventure we're all going on together. This is you know, a hard case to talk about. It's a young, sick person, but it, it is uh, an important part of the passion we have for emergency medicine, which is being there in the middle of the night to take care of the sickest patients. And as you said, Venk, to rise to the care that they need. I was so inspired by the wonderful care you provided and grateful to you for, for sharing this.
0: Well, I, I do want to stress it was a huge team and I appreciate you being part of that by sharing some of the expertise I needed to get this stuff done. And, and so it was, it was wonderful. And to hear that she survived, uh, certainly makes it all the better. Hopefully you listening enjoyed this and don't forget to like, comment and follow our show. I had to say it, Alex, I'm sorry. On whatever platform you're using, tune in, uh, in a couple of weeks and we'll release a grand rounds episode. Uh, it is gonna be a great year. The always on EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Balamconda.